You guys may want to turn me down just a tad, maybe, because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm subject to start screaming up here. I don't think I'm going to be able to sit in this seat, even though this, this set is supposed to remind us of uh, a, set, a setting in, in a coffee shop, all right? That's why this is here. I got my little cup of coffee thing here, my water, and, and, and it's, really, it's really to remind us that the gospel of Jesus Christ can be taken anywhere. And this is the last week of, of our Bar Napkin Gospel Series, uh, where we've discussed what it means to take uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world around us. Um, that said, next week we begin a brand new series that I've titled Covenant and Kingdom, where we're going to take a look at the two concepts that are woven into a, a central theme throughout the Bible. The concept of covenant, which covers the nature of God, and then the, uh, the concept of kingdom, which is the nature of his church. And I believe that this promises to be a very enlightening series, so I'm asking that you join me over the next few weeks as we discuss and explore covenant relationship and kingdom responsibilities as a family. By way of review, I want to go back and recap what we've been over for the last several weeks. Again, the Barnapkin Gospel series is designed to describe what new life in Christ actually looks like. A life that's filled with a different set of priorities and, and responsibilities and passions different than our own. And we, we started this series in hopes to be able to give you, or being able to give you, simple shapes through which you could actually express or explain the gospel. Simple shapes that could be drawn out on something as small as a bar napkin or a small piece of paper. When we begin our series, we begin with the shape of a triangle, and, and the triangle is about the life of Jesus Christ, a life that he wants us to imitate, a life that's full and rich with relationships, his up relationship with his father, his in relationship with his covenant community and those in his inner circle, and then his out relationship with the world around him. These relationships represent the priority of Jesus Christ. In our second week, we begin to explore the passions of Jesus. His passions for both himself and for us begins with enjoying the presence of God fully. And so we started on the right side of the triangle, and we began with the question, how do we enjoy the presence of God? And so then I introduced you to the semicircle where I showed you that to enjoy the presence of God, it means that we need to press into an abiding relationship with him. Pressing into abiding and then allowing the pendulum of life to swing back over to a life that's full and rich of fruit bearing and achievement. And then I told you that we can't have it the other way around, that you can't press into a life of achievement and fruit bearing and work because, because if you do, you'll never take the time to rest and enjoy being in the presence of God. Because when you press into work, when you press into achievement, before you know it, if you're not careful, your life will be embroiled in the struggle of accomplishment and achieving and you'll work towards things that can never satisfy and will never let you go. And so you'll struggle. Then last week, we took a look at the bottom side of the triangle. The bottom side speaks to transformation. How do we experience true and lasting life change? How does transformation occur practically in our lives? 
And then how can I, as I'm being transformed and I'm seeing others being transformed, how can I step into their life and walk with them through the transformation that they're experiencing and that I'm experiencing? And so to explain this transformation, I used the shape of a circle divided in two halves with a, with a line attached to the top, that line denoting our life, the timeline of our life. And what I presented to you from Scripture is that lasting change in our lives can only occur when we're able to recognize the voice of God and then answer two questions as a result of hearing his voice. God, what is it that you're saying to me? And what is it that you want me to do about it? And see, then if we're able to discern those two questions and answer those two questions, we'll live a life that, that, that is consistent with, with transformation again and again as we hear the voice of God and step into obedience to what he's telling us to do. So today we're going to finish this series by looking at the left side of the triangle, how we can demonstrate or be a demonstration of the life of Jesus Christ to the world around us and embrace the purpose of Christ in our lives. Purpose is what we're going to talk about today. You know, Jesus came here on purpose. He was on purpose, and his purpose was to bring the good news, the good news, the gospel. Jesus makes a statement in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. He says this. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's a statement of, of why he came. Jesus came to rid the world of, of evil and death and poverty and disease and corruption and suffering and pain and, and slavery. He is the conquering king with an undefeatable war plan. And his plan is to free the world from the clutches of Satan and to free the world from the tyranny of sin. That's why he came. That's his purpose. He's, he came on mission. And his mission is to advance his kingdom purpose throughout the whole world by filling the world with disciples, with his disciples. Every single disciple of Jesus Christ is on mission with him. That's why he came. And, and when he left, when he ascended into heaven, he gave us a command. We call it the great co-mission. We are on mission. We are co-missionaries with him. We're on mission with him. The Great Commission is found in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 and 19, where Jesus says, you go. I'm sending you on mission to teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And I'm, I'm commissioning you to teach them to observe all things that I've commanded you, all the things that I've discipled you and told you how to live. I'm teaching, I'm telling you to teach people, all nations, that. And then he said this, I'm with you. I'll never leave you. I'll be with you always to the end of the age disciples. 
So, so what is a disciple? Christ. When Jesus says, go and make disciples, what is he talking about? Well, disciple is, is a lifelong learner. It's a student of something or someone. I love Dallas Willard's definition of a disciple of Jesus Christ. He said, a disciple is a person who is learning to be who Jesus would be if he were me. Jay Pullins made this statement when, when, when he spoke this sermon. He said, listen, he said, great people study great people. Jesus Christ is the greatest person that ever walked the face of this earth. And as his disciples, we are to study his life. So our commission. Our commission as followers of Christ is to make disciples of Christ who make disciples until every single corner of the earth is filled with his disciples. So now what does that look like practically? What, what, how can we accomplish this? How can we see this vision of making disciples of every nation actually become a reality? I believe to answer that question, we go to the scripture, and I believe that Jesus gave us a foolproof strategy of discipleship that began with the 12 men in his inner circle that he discipled over the span of three and a half years. And so to illustrate this discipleship strategy today, we're going to use the shape of a square. Okay? Paul decides or describes his strategy for us in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse 14. Why don't you turn there? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse 14. And I know that it's on the screen, but I just love to hear the pages turning. It's one thing to see it on the screen. It's another thing to look in your Bibles and see it for yourself. How many brought your Bibles with you? How many of you know that I'm going to ask that question almost every Sunday? Yeah. Look what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. He says, I'm writing this. We're talking about disciple makers now. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children, even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ, I became your father through the gospel. Now, in those two simple verses, I think Paul gives us the four stages of Jesus' discipleship strategy, and we're going to represent those four stages in this square. The first stage is to learn it. It's the information stage. Paul says, though you've got 10,000 guardians, you don't have many fathers. Paul here is using the metaphor of a family, what it takes to raise children to adulthood. You see, in the Greek culture, children were placed under, under, under the, the care and the, and the guidance of a, of, a, of a guardian, someone that cared for them. And that guardian would, would sometimes homeschool them, put them in a classroom, a formal classroom environment. They would teach them. They would provide care and formal education to this child. They would walk them back and forth to school. That child would be under their supervision and under their guidance and under their oversight. Okay? So then as a child would begin to, to receive this information and this knowledge necessary, to develop them in the formative years, 
the Greeks began to realize that that's just a one-sided look at growth and development, that there needed to be more. They understood that knowledge and information, classroom, formal setting, was not enough. So then somewhere around the age of 12, somewhere between 10 and 12, the child would enter the second stage of growth and development. And this second stage also represents the second stage of discipleship, and it occupies a second space on our square. On our square. And this is where we learn to live it. So we learn it, and we live it. This is where we see someone actually live out what they say in life. And here's the truth. You and I cannot be what we cannot see. We need example setters. And so the child would come out of the formal school setting. He would, he would come home to be with the parent, and they would receive in that home, that oikos atmosphere, hands-on, one-on-one personal training and discipleship. If it was a boy, he'd work side-by-side side with his father, learning the workings of the family business. If the father was a carpenter, he'd do carpentry. If he was a stonemason, he'd teach him the, the wares of stonemaking. If he was a winemaker or a metal worker, the father would instill that in the son. The son would work side by side, shoulder to shoulder with his father, learning the family business and carrying on the legacy of the family. Discipleship. If it was a young girl, the young girl then would come into the home and, and they, would, they would nestle up against mom and mom would teach them how to care and manage the home, learn the value of what it means to be a good homemaker, to take care of what your husband provides you as he brings things into the home. And so as a boy, the father would, would live this thing out every single day with his son at his side. And he would model for his son. He would instill in his son everything that he wanted his son to understand for life. Not just for the business, but for life. And so to that, Paul, Paul writes to this end. He writes this. He says, you have many teachers, many guardians, 10,000 guardians in Christ, but, but you don't have many fathers. He said that over 2,000 years ago. I'm going to tell you something. We have the same concerns today. Today, there's no lack of teachers. There's no lack of opportunities for learning. I mean, if you think about this, you don't even have to come to church to hear the gospel. There's podcasts, there's sermons online, there's blogs, there's books, there's other resources, there's conferences and seminars and workshops that you can go to. All around us are plenty of opportunities to learn. Learning is not the problem. Modeling is the problem. The problem is a lack of spiritual father figures. And I'm telling you, young men are searching for spiritual father figures whose life reflects the incarnation of the gospel. They need to see them. They need to rub shoulders with them. They need to be with them. They, they need to have access to their life. They need an example that they can imitate. Discipleship. Because they cannot be what they cannot see. They need to see it. I've been fortunate in my life. I have, I have two dads. 
The first one that you see here is, is my father. He's my biological father. He's a, he's, that's a rough dude, too, by the way. My father, I think you know the story. He homesteaded in North Pole, Alaska, before Alaska was even a state, man. Um, Elsina, you've been back to my father's place. My father is a rough guy, man, but he, and he's all man, and he loves Jesus. And so my father poured into me the spiritual foundation that still serves me well today. At a very early age, he was giving it to me. He was modeling it for me. And much of what you see today and what you hear today is a direct reflection of my father's impartation in my life. Then I have another spiritual father who just recently passed on. His name is Horace. He's gone away to be with the Lord. And God placed him in my life at a time in my life where I needed another father figure outside of my dad to speak into me. And, and Horace did that over, over the number of years. He was the only man that my father ever took out to lunch and personally looked him in his eyes and thanked him for being as much of a spiritual father to me as my own biological father had been. These two men have been my spiritual fathers. In the life of these two men, I've seen the incarnation of the gospel. I've, I've seen a life worth living demonstrated daily to me. And so here's what happened. I begin to imitate the behavior I saw in them. I begin to live it. And that's the second stage of discipleship. Learn it, live it. The third stage is lead it. And this is where we begin to, to personally model the life that becomes more and more like Jesus Christ every day. Where we step out on the edge and we begin to lead a life that others can follow. It's the strategy of imitation. It's a strategy. And it's God's plan for us to find a life worth imitating. And watch this now. Imitate it. It's God's plan. Now, now watch how this spiritual principle works. Watch how it works. It's perpetual. Paul has an encounter with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Right? Paul, Paul hears from Jesus, begins to imitate the life of Jesus. Then he begins to disciple Peter or, or, or Timothy. Timothy begins to imitate, imitate the Jesus that he sees in the life of Paul. Then Paul goes on and he establishes a church in Philippi. And listen to what he writes to the church in Philippi. Philippians chapter 4 verse 9. Listen to this. That's what he tells the church. Those things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me do those things and the same anointing that you see on me the same God of peace that has been with me he will also be with you the same things that you see me accomplishing spiritually you will be able to accomplish spiritually yourself <laughs> so how does this look practically I see the life of Jesus Christ imitated by my two dads. I step into what I see and I begin to imitate the Jesus that's on the inside of them. And listen, I don't want you to miss that because this is a good, this, this is a key, key factor here. God doesn't want us to imitate 
people. He doesn't want us to clone ourselves after a person. He wants us to see the glory of God and the Christ-like image that these men and women live out in front of us every day and imitate that. So if there's something in my life that you see, if there's something in your life or something in your life that someone sees, they gravitate to the power of God and the Christ-like image in your life and they begin to imitate that. It's never about us. We, listen, we are carriers of his glory. We are carriers of his glory. We are carriers of his glories. We are what? We are carriers of his glory. <laughs> Let me show you how, how this works practically. A few years ago, I was a men's pastor over at Change Point. And, uh, and I had a young man walk up to me, and he said to me, I want you to mentor me. I mean, just like that. And I said, uh, you, you want me to mentor you? He said, yeah. He said, I've been watching your life. I've been watching how you carry yourself, and, and, and I see something in you that I, I, I want to imitate. I want you to mentor me because I want what you have. Fifteen years old. I looked at him, I said, man, are you sure? He said, yeah. I took this young man under my wing. I began to meet with him. We'd have coffee together. Well, he wouldn't drink coffee. He'd drink whatever he drank. But we'd sit down and we'd talk. Go to his house for certain occasions. He'd hang out with me, rub shoulders with me, call me when he was in a crisis, call me just to talk. Wanted what he saw in me. So after the first year, I was like, man, this dude, this, this cat is serious, right? So at 15 years old, I invited him into the men's fraternity. I was leading the men's fraternity at that time. I set this young 15-year-old man, this 15-year-old young man, at a table with a group of well-seasoned followers of Jesus Christ. And every day when we would meet, every Tuesday, we would talk about the things that concerned us as godly men. And this young man would hear it. And it would evoke questions, and he would call me, he'd ask me questions, and we'd dialogue, and he'd walk him through, I'd walk him through those questions. Next year rolled around, and I gave him more responsibility for the men's fraternity. I said, man, now you started off as, you know, kind of keeping the, the, the books and the tapes and all that stuff. Now what I want you to do is I want you to be responsible now to contact these full-grown men and make sure that they're in place where they need to be on Tuesday morning. So every single uh, Monday night, He'd be on the phone contacting full-grown men. After a while, they recognize his voice. He'd meet him at the men's fraternity, meet him at the door, and he was learning. He was growing. He was developing. He started to, to imitate some of the things that he had seen in me. By the third year, this young man had taken on so much responsibility and had grown so much that all I would have to do to the men's fraternity is just show up. He was handling everything. And I watched his spiritual life grow because watch this. Remember I read that scripture, Paul said, those things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me do, 
there would be nothing that I would tell this young man not to do that he would not do. He wanted what I had. And so he began to imitate that. Well, that was five years ago. And that young man is sitting right back. Where is he? That young man is sitting right back there. And here's, here's, here's where it's gone now. When he introduces me to his friends, he introduces me as his dad. And I've watched him a couple of times. He's like, hey, this is my dad. And, and, and the people go, yeah, right. And here's the he said, he said, listen, he said, no, this is my spiritual dad. This is my spiritual father. Wesley's not wanting to be me. He's wanting to imitate what he sees in me as I push toward an abiding relationship and begin to exhibit Christ's likeness in my life. He's looking at the Jesus that he sees in me. Let me tell you something. God wants every one of us to be an example like that. Every single Christ follower to be an example of Christ's likeness. Okay, so I can, I can just hear the noise in the room. Here it is. Sounds scary to me, man. I don't know if I can do that. I'm sure you can think of a whole host of reasons why this should not be you, why you shouldn't step into a position of leading it. I don't think I want to give people that kind of access to my time. That could be a reason, an excuse. Maybe it's uncomfortable or it's inconvenient. Maybe you feel like you're too busy or that people are too messy. Maybe you don't have your own life together, so you think, so how can I lead others? Maybe you don't want to be perceived as arrogant, thinking I got it all together, and so I don't want to be perceived as having it all together. And I can tell you what, the list can go on and on and on and on about excuses that we could make not to step into discipleship. But let me tell you something. If you are experiencing the life-changing grace of Jesus Christ, God wants to use you just as you are right now. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to have your life all clean and polished. All you need to do is be willing to be used of the Lord. That's it. You just have to be willing to grow in Christ's likeness and to model the things that God is showing you as he shows you. Stepping into those things and making those kinds of life changes. And I promise you, as you start to change your life, God will start to put you in positions where he will use you more and more and more. You guys clear so far? Is that, is that clear? Okay. If that's clear, everybody say amen. That's what I'm talking about. Listen, our culture is starving for good role models. Our, our culture is star starving for people that, that are imitatable. And listen, you don't, if, if, if you, if you want to live a life that, 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 that is life-changing and world-changing, you don't have to start with those, you know, way across the continent. You can start with your, your sphere of influence, those that are closest to you, those in your immediate family. You can let them see God at work in your life. You can let them experience 
what you've been learning and then ask them to join you in it. You can set an expectation that as you're walking with them and you're developing them, that, that, that at some point they're going to be charged with walking with others and developing others. That's how it works. That's how discipleship begins. So you learn it. You live it. You lead it. Then the fourth stage is you launch it. And listen, just like natural parents pour into their children before they launch them into the world, the much, much the same way, we launch those who we have invested in. We launch them into opportunities to be the demonstration of Jesus Christ to the world around them. And I'd say this, to charge them to just find a few people, just a few people, and allow them into their lives. Here's why. Launching healthy disciples will be how other healthy disciples are reproduced. And from healthy disciples being reproduced, healthy churches will be planted. And every healthy church that is planted will lead to the gospel being spread to the four corners of the world. Hmm. Now, here's how that works out practically. Let me give you another example. Chris Kefalos, brother elder of mine, gave his life to Jesus Christ 10 years ago. Since that time, he'd been faithfully rubbing shoulders with faithful men, imitating the lives of faithful men, kept himself in the company of those great men. Raised a family of children who loved Jesus Christ. Began to lead people spiritually at change point. He was ordained as an elder about four years ago and became on as an elder. Now he's joining his best friend in, in an effort to plant a church right here in Anchorage, Alaska. And listen, it's our privilege as brother elders to launch him into that work this summer. We're excited to be able to do that. And listen, I know these two men that are planting this church. And I know that their desire is to take the gospel of Jesus Christ, not just to this state, but beyond, to the globe, to the four corners of the world. So now what if every single follower of Jesus Christ shared in that purpose? What if every single follower of Jesus Christ decided to be a disciple maker who made disciples. Let me show you how this could change everything. I want to give you two contrasting scenarios. The first scenario is not effective. It's not as effective as it could be. The second is more effective. Say myself and I, myself and I, say, say I and four other friends met for a Bible study for five years. And we grew in relationship, grew in our faith. That'd be a good thing, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be a good thing? That's a good thing, but that's not the best thing. Because that's, that's not God's plan for, the, for covering the earth with disciples. And remember, th th sometimes the enemy's not in the evil thing. Sometimes he's just in the things that take us off mission. You with me on that? Where we get distracted. So now, here's a second scenario. Imagine that, that myself and, and four of my friends commit to a plan that models a life of Jesus Christ to make disciples. 
And so we enter a one-year study program of the, of the New Testament with the understanding that each of us will go out and duplicate what we've learned in five other men. We do that for five years. That's over 3,000 people who will be personally discipled and hear the good news of Jesus Christ. That's 3,000 people. Now check this out. What if 100 of us in this room committed to that? What would our city look like in the next 20 years? Wow. Sound impossible? It's not. Let me give you some historical facts. Jesus, when, when, when he left, I gave you the Great Commission in Matthew 28. He ascended to heaven. He left behind 120 disciples. And the last thing that he told them is you go into all nations, teach and baptize. And they did it year after year, decade after decade, for 300 years. And in 300 years, these 12 men turned the Roman Empire upside down. Half the Roman Empire won to Jesus Christ during the heaviest time of persecution. 120 men. Now that's just the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire represented about one about 0.5% of the world's population, all right? So now look what happens over the next 1,200 years. From 1,200 A.D. to A.D. 1,500, that percentage doubled to 1% of the world's population. Over the next 400 years, watch how these numbers reduce. Over the next 400 years, from A.D. 1500 to A.D. 1900, again, the population of Christians in the world more than doubled to 2.5%. Now the next 70 years, from 1900 to 1970, the, it doubled again. The population of Christians doubled to 5% of the world population. And then in the last 40 years, from 1970 to 2010, it more than doubled again. 12% of the world's population naming the name of Jesus Christ. And now today, there are more than one out of every seven people in the world name the name of Jesus Christ. I'm not just talking about those that say I'm a Christian. I'm talking about people that are actively pursuing relationship with Jesus Christ. God's plan is working and it's going to be accomplished. It's his plan. So now, where do we sit today in terms of discipling the whole world? Today, there are still 8,000 ethnic groups that have yet to be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I know that sounds like a large number, but here's what I want you to consider. There are over 8 million Christian churches worldwide. That's 1,000 churches for every unreached people group. So what does that mean? It means that we're close. The Bible tells us that when the gospel is preached to all nations, then the return of Jesus would happen. Right? And so we're close. It means we need to be hard at it. Why? Because I don't know about you, but I'm ready to go home. And the sooner we get this thing done, the sooner we can go home and be with our king forever. What you say about that? But I don't want you to make any mistake, family. It's still hard work. It's going to be hard work. There's a whole lot of work to be done. And listen, there's no shortcuts. Disciple making is a one-on-one -on -one 
personal relationship one with another. It's got to be done one person by one person. That's the only way discipleship can happen. And disciples of Jesus Christ are called. We are called, family, to make disciples. And so that's where we're going to be placing our focus this year. We're going to place our focus on making disciples who can make more disciples of Jesus Christ. And it starts right here. Starts right here in our church and in our own backyard. Starts with the question, with each one of us individually, life in Christ for who? Life in Christ for my neighborhood? Life in Christ for the community right down the street? Life in Christ for the homeless shelter? Life in Christ for my cousin? Life in Christ for who? That said, there are two questions that we need to ask ourselves as disciples of Christ. And Jose, you can bring your, your team up. The first question is this. What is God saying to me? What, what is he saying to me? As, as I look at the four stages represented on this, on this discipleship square, where am I at in my own growth and development? Where do I stand And what is God saying to me about that right now in this place? What do I need to be doing? What is God saying to me? The second question is what are you going to do about it? Every disciple of Christ needs to be asking those two questions. And here's what I want you to do this week. I'd like for you to consider in prayer what those questions mean for you what it looked like for you to posture yourself to be in a, a disciple of Christ who makes disciples of Jesus Christ and what will it take for you to move from wherever you are on that discipleship square to the next segment or to the next space on that square learn it live it Lead it, launch it. Four stages of discipleship. Why don't you stand with me? Father, it is fitting that we end this message series today with the greatest call ever given to man, and that is to make disciples of Jesus Christ who makes disciples. My prayer today for for both myself and my church family is that you will show us how to press more into relationship with you so that we can every day more and more live a life that's being more transformed into your image and into your likeness, a life that is clearly imitatable, transferable, a life that's filled with your glory and with your presence. I pray, Lord, that that as we take a look at this mandate that you've given us to be an example of kingdom living, I pray that every single day you mold us, you make us, you hone us, you refine us, and then you, you continue to make us aware and mindful of the fact that you've 
placed your glory and your presence and your power on the inside of us. Not just for us so we can go to heaven. Our salvation is secure in you. But that we can be a light and an example of kingdom living. So that men and women everywhere will see your glory in our lives and come crying, I want some of that. Give me some of that. What must I do to be saved? And so that's the charge today, Father. Make us more and more like your son. In Jesus' name, amen.